Buen día y bienvenidos a todos from Fred. That is the one and only Dr. Fred Bossert and myself. This is, I think, the December 2023 or maybe January 2024 Wilderness Medicine Podcast. Whoops for the delay. I just returned from down south. That is the Colchagua Glacier in Chile to participate in the first ever foundational diploma of mountain medicine in Latin America. The Grupo de Rescate de Médicos de Montaña, or GRIM, was the organizer. I'll give details later in the podcast, but I'm going to hold off on any other translations to summarize the end of this podcast to get the podcast out. Je suis désolé, mes amis. And with Christmas coming, well, enough said. Our article of the month on sports-specific finger strength training and injuries segues into information about ideal training for climbing, as well as topics not covered in the article, including nutritional supplements. Then we'll go to Chile to talk to doctors Nicholas Mena from Grem Chile and Martin Musi from the University of Colorado about the Chile Summer DIM program that I just alluded to. Fred then goes on to interview our WMS committee leaders, Drs. Jesse Genner and Justin Gardner, both strongly representing the Virginia Tech Carillion Wilderness Medicine Program, where they not only discuss their WMS committee leadership roles in the graduate medical education, that is, Wilderness Medicine Fellowships, the WMS Student and Residency Education Subcommittee, but also the Virginia Tech Journal Club. And then they'll give us a little insight into what wilderness medicine is like on the East Coast. It's informative for me. And is it Appalachia or is it Appalachia? Eh, at any rate, these rising stars in wilderness medicine will not just give you, the listener, a lot of info on what they do, but will inspire you to find your own niche in wilderness and mountain medicine. So let's get on with it. Now, with the winter coming on in the Northern Hemisphere, many of us are preparing for skiing or ice climbing or whatever your winter sport happens to be. If you're a rock climber, you might opt for indoor training. In fact, some of you are opting to improve your strength winter or summer with specific training for rock climbing, perhaps with fingerboards. But wait, isn't fingerboard training dangerous? Huh. Well, with me to discuss this, Dr. Fred Vossert. We're going to discuss our current journal article, A Finger in the Game, Sports-Specific Finger Strength Training and Onset of Injury. And I have the pleasure, we have the pleasure, I should say, of discussing this with our author from Norway, Dr. Gidman Grevenhaug. Did I say that good? Yeah, it's, it's close enough. I can live with better, it. Better than Fred could say it. Better than I could say it, for sure. So that was, that was I was impressed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, well, good moon. Welcome. It's great to have you here. And, you know, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. Well, in this article, you go through some initial information on climbing specific injuries. You discuss in the paper that more than 40% of chronic climbing injuries are finger injuries. And almost, almost 70% of climbers have had a finger injury of some sort during the past 36 months in uh in total the 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 number of chronic uh, injuries to the fingers is around 40 in our paper uh mm -hmm. in but in, in in that subgroup it uh it reaches more up to up to 70 percent of the male climbers 
with short experience and a higher level of performance, then it's slightly higher, uh, up to 70% probably. But, but, but on, the, on the total, it's not so many, it's more like 40% or something, which is on the average of, of, of the, the research on, on climbing injuries internationally. And, but what's, what's important to remember is that for, for most climbing injuries in, to, to the fingers, they are not very severe. It's, it's uh, a paper from, from Germany. They, they went through the, the files of, of, climbing, of finger injuries to, to climbers in their hospital, and they found that most of them was in the UEAA scale one, which means no intervention needed. So although it's a lot of climbers reporting, I mean, like pain or injury, we, we actually don't know either because it's, uh, it's self-reported. We actually really don't know how many, which is pain or which is injury. And that's a problem actually. But right. in our paper, yeah, 40%. Could you briefly describe for some of the listeners that may not know what a fingerboard is and how is it intended to strengthen a climber? A fingerboard is like a piece of wood with some edges and pockets on it in which you use to hang from or do pull-ups from. And the, the, the depth of the edges and pockets could, be, could range from maybe 45 millimeters to maybe 14, I think it's most common on, on, on the most used fingerboards uh, although you can have them down to like six or four millimeters if you if you're really into it so it's, it's kind of like a miniature climbing wall that you can put in a door in a, in a door frame or whatever it fits it's really small so it's easy to fit in your house is there a certain way you do the exercises with it so i can i'm visualizing what it is but how how would you do exercises with it or how would you how would you how would you use it? Is it similar to like how you use a pull-up bar or what, how would you use it? Yeah, it's, it's pretty similar to, 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 to a pull-up bar, although it's, um, for at least most people, it's pretty limited how many pull-ups you can do on a six millimeter edge. But apart from that, it's pretty much like a pull-up bar and that you can do pull-up exercises. You can uh, do core exercises and, uh, and whatever you fancy doing uh, the, the, the main difference is that most people are using the fingerboards just to hang from. So we just use one of the, the smaller pockets uh, or smaller edges, and then you hang from it and, and, and do what's, call, um, what's called repeaters. Uh, and that's mainly hanging seven seconds, resting three seconds, and, and repeating for like uh, six or seven times, and then have a longer rest, and then change the grip, and then repeat uh, again with seven seconds hang, three seconds rest. Well, that makes me feel better because some of my friends that use them, I've seen them do some pretty wild stuff, and it it just it embarrasses me. So that makes me feel much better to know it's a, it's a more of a hang. So then, do you work your way up to the, some of the smaller edges, or how, how do you how do you integrate those, or how do you decide what you're doing? Is it based on what you're what you're planning on tackling next, uh, grade wise, or? I th- I I would say that. Uh, Okay, I'm sorry to say this, guys, but most people are using the hangboards wrong because they are uh, using it to increase the larger muscles. They are uh, hanging from one arm, doing one arm hang-ups and stuff like that. But the the main reason to use a fingerboard, according to our paper, and and, and what was the intention of the study was to to see if a fingerboard 
and, and regular use of fingerboard could reduce the onset of injuries. And then it's a strength training tool. Although most climbers are using the fingerboards to do uh, exercises that it's not in the essence strength training. It, it's more like power endurance or endurance training. So, okay, now I forgot what the question was. <laughs> well, essentially, yeah. How do you, how do you do the exercises? So it sounds like you're describing it. It's 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 a specific tool, just like if you were going to try to do you know something specific with your bicep for for you know either with kettlebells or or barbells. It's a specific tool to try to get dialed into not yeah. big large muscle groups per se, but yeah, really yeah, more yeah. the fine fine fingers uh, uh, muscle groups. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, and and uh, I think. If you uh, actually, if you think of the fingerboard as an advanced barbell or or, or kettlebell, then it makes more sense uh, and, and makes it easier to to figure out how to use it. Actually, because then it's just a tool, like any other training tool, and, and what you do with it is uh, what uh, gives you the result you want. If you want to train endurance, you can just keep hanging from those edges for like a couple of minutes or do 20 seconds intervals, or, or you can reduce, either reduce the size of the edge or the number of fingers or add weight. So you can just hang there for like four seconds and then it's strength training. So, so, so it's, it's a, just like a kettlebell or a barbell, you can train endurance with it or you can train strength with it, depending on what your need is. I see. And so you said you could add weight versus just having your body weight versus, you know, you, you could add, you could add weight to that, to, to change the, the dynamic and change the, the shape of the exercise. Yeah. 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 And, and so, so, so you either add weight or reduce the size of the, uh, of the edges or reduce the number of fingers on the edges. So obviously as uh, one finger pocket is harder to hang on to than four finger pocket. To get back to our uh, our study was on uh, whether or not the use of fingerboard was uh, protective or or harmful according to finger injuries, and then most studies on on uh, sports injuries they are showing that strength training is reducing injuries. So so we were mainly interested in the strength training part of the use of the fingerboard. So and that's why I said that most people are using it well with well, well and actually if i could just clarify something so when we're discussing strength are we discussing strength of larger muscles smaller intrinsic hand finger muscles tendons what do what do we mean yeah okay okay so in terms of strength training on the fingerboard uh, you could obviously you can uh, also strengthen the large muscles with using the biggest holes and and doing pull-ups with a lot of weights and stuff but predominantly what we were interested in was the fingerboard training for the, uh, for the finger flexor muscles, which is rather small muscles. Because uh, when we are looking at finger injuries uh, and the fingerboard uh, uh, as a tool, we are looking for whether or not the strength training of the finger flexors are protective or harmful for the fingers. And then we kind of eliminate everything from the elbow and, and the rest of the body in, in, in this kind of training. Also, what we found, uh, saw that uh, most people are using the fingerboard with to train only finger strength and not the the overall upper body strength. That's in that's not in the uh, in the study, but it's in the in the the data we have that was not published. So it turns out I'm doing it right by hanging there, and my friends who are showing off, they're not doing it right. So I was right all the way. I like this. I'm, this is a good interview. I appreciate it. 
that makes me feel good. I, I'm, I, I hope all you guys are listening. I know you are, right? I yeah, do it right. I would say old, that old Fredo, old Fredo was not doing a bunch of pull-ups. He's hanging there, but I was doing it right. I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting with the studies, uh, getting the max out of it, baby. <laughs> or, face, or, baby. Yeah, I, we could either say that, or we could say that they are training for something different. They are training for some circus show that uh, you're not going to be a part of. But, yeah, but I, I like I like that I'm that I was right and they were wrong. That's where we're going with. That's what we learned today, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and just to put something in before we move on, uh, Goodmund, what I understand too is when you're hanging, you don't want to just simply let your how should I say your shoulder socket just kind of hang out. You should kind of tighten your shoulders a little bit, right, so that you're not injuring the shoulder. So, so, so now we're doing a, a fingerboard training protocol. <laughs> but that's cool. No, that's cool. If you want to have use a fingerboard regularly, and you should be aware of how engaged your shoulders are, probably. Although the problem with it is that then you are also relying on the strength of your shoulder girdle in terms of how much weight you can add. And I would actually take it one step further and say you should not only only see whether or not your shoulders are engaged, but also your core. Mm -hmm. uh, if you are, uh, and, and, and I mean, you can see it uh, or, or you can experience it with, uh, when you're hanging on the small edges, your knees tend to come up. When you're, when you're getting tired, your knees are lifting. And that's because you're trying to engage your core. Especially if you're adding extra weight, uh, hanging on like the 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 medium edges or on twenty millimeters or something, and and you add weight in a uh, in a belt, engaging your core will make you be uh, be able to add more weight than an unengaged core. I would actually say that's even more important than the shoulders because if you you can have your shoulders engaged, and then with your core unengaged, you will sooner or later start to sag down anyway but if you if you engage your shoulders and engage your core and pelvis and then you will have so much more strength in your fingers yeah no that's a good that's a great pro tip and what i want to do is i want to talk a little bit about the methods and i invite the listeners to look at the actual article for the complete description of the methods but it appears to have been a retrospective study survey rather using a web-based questionnaire and was it limited to the Finnish climbing community and if you could touch on some of the questions that the survey did include it, it wasn't limited to the Finnish climbers but you had to be able to read and understand Finnish to participate because the questionnaire was in Finnish <laughs> so so, so <laughs> I'd, I'd say that kind of rules out most of the rest of us but it was uh, it was a rather uh, extended questionnaire covering other themes than just the fingerboarding and uh, and how to use, uh, how they use the fingerboard. It was also, of course, social demographics and and, and uh, some questions about other training methods and how how they were climbing. But but what was most most interesting part of the questionnaire was this fingerboard protocol and and uh, whether or not and and to assess whether or not fingerboards were protective or harmful for for the fingers i mean it's also because if you if you include too much information in a in, in a scientific paper it can it tends to 
be difficult to pull out the essence of the paper. So, so that's why we try to narrow the 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 scope down and and look only on the whether or not the fingerboard was harmful or protectful. Looked like you had a, a wide range of uh, participants. Most were men, but you, you had a, a wide range that. Uh, it looks like many were, were have been climbing over three years and climbed three to four times a week. Do you know if regular fingerboard training was included in the respondents' regular climbing activities? Anna, who, who was the main brain behind this uh, study, she, she did a great job. And so we, she included more than 400 participants in the study. And it's it's really a good, uh, good number of uh, participants. And with a large range of level of performance, which makes it easier to, to use this study because it kind of represents the, the common climbing population. What we saw was about a quarter of the participants used the fingerboards regularly. And the, the higher the grades, the, the higher the level of performance of the, of the respondents, the, the more likely they were to, to use the fingerboard training tool as well. I think it was just about 15, less than 20% of the climbers who were on the lower range of, uh, of performance used, uh, used the fingerboard and more than half of them, or uh, those who were in the really upper elite level used the fingerboard regularly. And I, I guess that the more experienced higher level climbers tend to utilize regular fingerboard training as opposed to the newer climbers. Then we look at table two where fingerboard intensity, load, and number of weekly sessions are discussed. And it appears that the majority would either use body weight with two arms. We've elaborated on that. Maybe one arm, maybe add weight, maybe reducing body weight. In fact, does reducing body weight have any beneficial effects? Should we all just be hanging with at least our own body weight or add body weight? And there might be other things that you might want to describe with respect to table two? Yeah, I, I, I think what we could maybe should talk about is that we, we should kind of reel back to, to where we started and, and, and uh, describing the fingerboard as a training tool, like a kettlebell. So, so, so you should use it to, to gain the benefits you want. I'd say predominantly those who are climbing vertical walls and uh, on the, or, or in slabs, they tend to need more finger strength than those who are in the burly, uh, steep overhanging walls. They, they, they tend to need more upper body strength. So, so it makes more sense if, you, if you're a, a vertical climber or a slab climber, it, it makes more sense even to reduce the body weight to be able to use the smallest sizes of edges because specificity of finger training is uh, rather extreme actually, because finger training is a static form for, uh, of training. Okay, so, so, so you're, uh, you're using the, the, the muscles in a static kind of training. In research on, uh, on static training, you, they find that uh, if you change the angle of the joint with 15%, I mean, that's really not a lot at all. Then the, the uh, transferring value is almost nothing. And the bigger change of angle, the less transferring from, from the training. Mm. And that makes uh, finger strength training 
really, really, really specific. So, and, and, and then it, suddenly it, it makes sense to, to, to be training on the full cream, the half cream, uh, the, the open hand, the chisel, the sloper. I mean, you need to train every thinkable position to, to, to get the most out of a fingerboard. Now that's interesting because I mean what you're saying makes sense, but I wouldn't have thought I wouldn't have thought that to, to, to be the case. I would have thought you know you could just uh, get one of those old uh, old fashioned just hand grip you know exercises and call it a day. But but clearly there's no, a lot to it. That, 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 that's a dynamic training. Yeah, and, exactly. And, and, and I mean it, it would be super cool to see somebody do uh, like finger curls of a wall, but you probably <laughs> wouldn't be able to. <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 the 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 uh the specificity of finger training is insane and 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 you really need to make sure that you use the fingerboard so you so you make the gains that you actually need so for some people it makes sense to to reduce the body weight and to to be able to use the smaller sizes and for other it makes uh, because they probably like slab climbers or or vertical climbers uh, with uh, weak fingers and for others it makes sense to to be uh, train and be able to hang with one arm uh, because they are uh, doing more climbing in in steeper overhangs when you lose your feet and and then you are hanging off on, off on yeah. one arm and then you need that kind of strength it's interesting too with the with the strength and it makes this also makes sense when you think about it right but that the that muscle muscle hypertrophy is going to happen that actual strength is going to happen so much faster than all of the other components in the body that you're that you're looking at right so that's one thing that's kind of interesting to I'm, I'm trying to like put, wrap my mind around this is that it's not just the muscle that you're trying to increase like the actual hypertrophy in in a sense that you're trying to you know get get the the, the muscle strength but it's also tendons bone uh, you know ligaments all that is is much delayed with this so am i right in thinking that there's definitely a connection to this this concept of using this static type of exercise to help encourage that same type of strength in your tendons and ligaments and everything else yeah it is all right uh, yeah <laughs> and, <laughs> and this is this is uh, this is kind of the 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 tricky part of it because in a muscle you can measure a change in in strength after about two to four weeks of training then you can measure that you have had a strength gain due to some physiological changes in the muscle while the least training adaptable part of the uh, musculoskeletal system is the muscle bone insertion mm. i mean where the where, where the muscle is attached to the bone that takes like from one to two years to adapt so of course if you if you go out uh, really really hard and and do a lot of strength training you will get injured which is kind of what makes you think and that's kind of where i think maybe some people's thoughts would be going where it would be oh if we're doing all this extra fingerboard training are we going to increase our chance i mean i i read the article so i know i the answer here but are we going to increase our chance of of that with that with but again with that in mind you know if we're if we're climbing and we're going to do all this extra extra strength training are we going to overdo it and and then are we going to have more problems than we started with your your yeah. paper says says different 
No, I mean, it says two things. Uh, the, the, the main finding is what I would call a, a, a researcher's best friend, best possible find, because it, it, there is no black and white. There is no yes and no. What we found in this study was that those who are pushing the grades fast are increasing their level of performance in, rapidly and are training uh, with a fingerboard they get injured, while those who build their base, done their climbing, and been in the sport for a couple of years, and are using a fingerboard, they are not being injured. Actually, those, uh, they, those who are using a fingerboard are less injured than those who are not using the fingerboard in the upper grades. So the fingerboard is a great tool, and one, after you have been building your base, you should definitely uh, be using it to prepare the fingers for the load you are going to, to put them on while climbing. So in other words, it seems like those there might be some advanced climbers who have gone from, oh, let's say 5A, which in North America might be considered 5.7, to maybe 7A, which is a 12A here in the States. They did it maybe in five years, but they seem to have had more injuries than those who have been training longer, climbing longer, maybe more deliberate. That seems to be kind of the important find here, yeah? Yeah, exactly. That, that is the finding of this paper, that the, those who are rapidly increasing their grades and they are more injured than those who are building their base strongly. So then for folks that are wanting to start or get into climbing, and they have no experience, what would you recommend regarding fingerboard training to, to these individuals? <laughs> yeah, okay. <clears throat> I mean... Because people are hearing yeah. this and they're like, yeah, I want this thing. And where do you see it, folks? You see one of these things, you see some of your friends like go crazy on it, you're going to want one. So what do you, what do you have to say? <laughs> and a dis financial disclaimer, none of us are associated with Yeah, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> so now I can just say that everybody who gets injured, they should just give me a call because I do... <laughs> <laughs> both, 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 both me and Anna are doing online consultations for for injured climate. Keep them coming. Yeah, telehealth, no, yeah, yeah. Tele but no, but seriously, seriously, um, exactly as the findings in our paper, we see the, there is no black and white. It, it depends on what kind of climber you are. Whether uh, as a new newcomer to to climbing, it also depends on who you are. What what what's your experience with manual labor? I mean. If you're an office clerk uh, in your 40s, you never ever done anything crazier than carrying your grocery bags into your car and driving home. I'd say take it easy, build your base, get your mileage in, uh, learn the technique, do the job properly, uh, and 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 stick with a routine that uh, that suits you and, and and makes you stronger over time. But if you if you're like a carpenter or a, woodsman or used to manual labor and you're in your 20s i mean go for it man but it's really 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 individual and and that's probably the the the, the most important message i can think of in this uh, climbing game is i know people who have been climbing 8a the first year of climbing i think that's like 513 or something isn't it 513 yeah that's right 513 yeah and they did it with less than one year of experience, and they got never ever got injured. 
But then again, uh, one of them was uh, gymnastic on, on a national level, and the other guy was, uh, I think he did some martial arts uh, gold in uh, Norwegian championships. Wow. I mean, they're really, really skilled athletes when they started. But for, for, for the main character out there, and the, the, the average Joe, you should build your base and get your mileage in. Lots and lots and lots of mileage. Well, then it sounds like if I wanted to go from a 6A to 7A grade, in your opinion, it would seem like fingerboard training would reduce my chances of injury if I had that base to achieve that higher grade. And it also would allow me as a climber to be able to climb harder, yeah? Exactly. And, and, and probably also avoid the injuries. And, and, and this really, really has to be uh, stated properly is that it depends on how much how, how long you have been training and whether or not your your joints and, and uh, tendons are used to the strain you are putting them uh, giving them but using a fingerboard properly and wisely i would definitely say it reduces injuries and and, and we also have this paper now that they this uh, this study that shows that those who are in a higher ability uh, they should use a fingerboard to to uh, to avoid injuries and the average Joe that comes from straight from the street and starts to climb should build their base and should do the mileage and avoid the fingerboard in the first couple of years. Can I go chase a squirrel? I see a squirrel over there. And the squirrel is a question that I want to ask. Some people ask me, do you recommend any nutritional supplements, collagen? Some in the climbing community discuss this branch chain amino acids. I don't know if you can comment on that. If not, that's fine. Do you really want me to go down that road? I get so <laughs> yeah, I'm now, I'm, now I'm really curious. Now I'm really yeah. curious now with that response. I was curious before, but now I'm really curious. Okay. For you folks at home, he's, he just, he's just taken off his glasses and he's like buckled <laughs> ready. in. He's buckled in. Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> do, do you want the long answer or the short answer? What, whatever you think would be good. If there were myths or truths to that or unsettling truths, that'd be fine. Yeah, okay, okay. I would say... For most supplements, is completely avoidable. I mean, they cost a lot. I can't remember the the the, the numbers quite correctly, but it's more than ninety percent of the of the uh, supplements that are, have been tested for their ingredients are not what they claim to be, because this is this is an unregulated industry, so it's not a pharmaceutical product you're buying. Hmm. And that's super important to understand. That's one part of it. So, so if you are eating healthy and eating enough, which is really, really, really important, you should. If you if you want to train hard, you have to eat hard. If you if you're eating healthy and enough, you have there, there is absolutely no need for supplements. If you know in Norway, we have the cross country skiing team, which are they are they are winning everything. I mean, always winning everything in, in the Olympics and, and, and they are having an insane amount of training. I mean, they, 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 they are training so much that nobody are able to match them uh, by, by in, not even by the professional climbers. So they don't do supplements, nothing, which tells me if you're eating properly and you can win an Olympic medal in cross-country skiing, you probably don't, don't need it. And what's, what's even more important is that taking supplements to, to increase the, the efficiency of training 
say that this gives you 1% gain. If you are doing proper strength training, you should see at least a 10% gain in, uh, in uh, three months. I, and, and I hear this from, from climbers a lot, both as an uh, uh, athlete now for 30 years and, and, and as a coach for 30 years, I, I get this question a lot. The thing is, if you are doing everything perfect, you are you are having the perfect diet, you, you, you sleep enough, you stay away from stressors, you have the perfect life, and you want that little extra percent uh, and you have the money to, to, to spend on it, okay, but there are better and cheaper ways to have a lot bigger gains, enhancing and gains without spending money on, on supplements. That's one part of it. The other part of it is that especially the collagen is probably uh, I, 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 I actually I, I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> I'll probably get sued for somebody. Probably not uh, bio as bioactive as we would like. Is yeah. Maybe. No, but 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 it's it's uh, okay. When you when you eat something, say you eat a cheeseburger or 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 or, or uh, hummus or whatever you would like to eat, it's not like the the components when when you're digesting it, they are pulled apart. They they are taking into their the the uh, amino acids are ripped apart into each component. So collagen is is nothing else than uh, a protein with uh, uh, some amino acids. That uh, that is kind of how the protein is built up. Okay. Right. So whether you're eating burger or you are eating collagen supplement, it's broken down, and then the body takes the amino acids that it needs to reassemble to collagen if you need the collagen to your tissue. So, so, so it really doesn't matter if you're eating collagen or if you're eating proper food that contains the same uh, amino acids, then your body will build the collagen you need, no matter what. And if you are taking, uh, if you are in, go, uh, having too much of those amino acids, you, you end up with really expensive poo. That's what you do. Yeah, and some and some of the some of the the, the neon urine is like nice to look at though. And some of the some of the vitamin supplements, it's nice. Yeah. <laughs> but like you said, only if you can afford it. Only if you can afford neon urine and expensive poo. And and, and if you need that one percent extra gain. And, and another thing with collagen is that it stiffens the tendons. If you, have, if you somehow manage to, to make your body produce uh, an extra amount of collagen in your tissues, you stiffen the tendons more than you do with training alone. And that actually should make the alarm bells ring because if you stiffen your tendons, then the muscle tendon transition might be impaired so I, I would really just avoid it. I can't see any reason why, why you should need it. Wow. Well, it's made my skin more radiant and younger looking. So I don't know what to do. <laughs> I, can, I can tell just from here. Yeah. yeah. It's because Daryl and I are both trying to get sponsorships. So 
There you go. <laughs> yeah, I'm, Whoever, whoever's listening that wants to sponsor us, we, we can refute <laughs> this later. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm probably not going to get any sponsors with this, but... I'm, 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 I'm open to being a shill for, for whoever's out there who wants to sponsor us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I so, 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 yeah I, I would go for proper nutrition and one extra serving to make sure that you have energy you need to produce the, the, the muscles you need. I don't know if it fits into your, your uh, podcast now, but we have another paper out where we found that those who are restrictive with the food, who have an eating disorder or a disordered eating. And, and I mean, we all know that a lot of climbers are, are restricted with their food. They, they're like, I can't have this cake because I some reason why they can't have cake. I, I love cake. Uh, and what we found was that those with, with an eating disorder or disordered eating, they are twice as likely to have an injury. Yeah, nutrition is very important. Yeah, you should. It's, I, I, I can't say it strongly enough, but if you, if you want to train a lot, you have to eat a lot. It's really that simple. So to, to, to sort of wrap up some of it, what, for those who've been climbing, so we talked about the beginners, right? And there's just, just to, sort in, in, a, in somewhat of a summary, but, but just to kind of finish it out, we talked about the folks that are just off the street. For those who've been climbing, say, for more than six years, if a climber wanted, wanted to, to, to move up, in your opinion, would fingerboard training simply reduce injuries in an attempt to achieve a higher grade, or would it actually promote a climber ability to climb harder? Oh, it's it's difficult to answer because it depends on who you are. Uh, according to our paper and, and and the study, and I think we should probably stick to it. I, it seems that those who are in the lower grades with uh, short experience, they should avoid using a fingerboard to not stress the the, the tendons and ligaments too much. And and it also what we have forgotten to say is that uh, it also seems that those who are doing uh, predominantly bouldering are more prone to injuries if they are using fingerboard than others because it's it's more finger intense than climbing climbing routes. But if you are in in, in the higher level of performance with uh, with a sufficient experience, you should be using a fingerboard as a protective tool. Yes, Good Moon, this has been very enlightening. I feel, and we appreciate your time and publishing the article. Yeah, no, thank you for for for, for having me, and thank you for pu- publishing our article. It's- been an honor and a pleasure. You know who I am for you at WMS, and I'm here in Chile in the middle of Colchagua Glacier, and we just had our first foundational dim course in Chile. And I have two friends here. I have Nicolas Mena from Chile, and I have Martin Musi. He says he's from Argentina, but you're actually living in Colorado, yeah? The, gri- the gringo argentino. The gringo argentino. <laughs> so, Nicolas, tell me what inspired you to do this course here in the middle of nowhere to do a dim. We saw that in Chile we really needed to improve our knowledge in mountain racing, our uh, skills uh, to be better rescuers. 
and yeah, when can you, do you remember when I stayed in New Mexico? Yes, I went there for the wilderness medicine elective. Yes, in UNM. Yes, uh, <laughs> yeah, and for me it was like to travel to the future now wow. to see how things could be done. So when I came back to Chile, I I saw the contrast, you know? mm -hmm. and with this ideal, with this uh, vision, we start a group uh, called STEM, that's the Grupo de Rescate Médico de Montaña, um, that has the main goal to meet people, to join people uh, interested in mountain medicine and rescue medicine, you know? oh, wow. mountain medicine rescue. Right. So, yeah, I think that was my first inspiration. That was your inspiration, right. Yeah. And it appears that we have just finished this class. We've had 18 candidates, DIM candidates, students, and they all were very enthusiastic, learned a lot. But we also had five instructors that were also participating to become DIM certified. And three guides... Three mountain guides, one IFMGA guide, two other guides with so much experience. So, Martin, how did you help uh, form this course? What was your responsibility here for DIM Chile? So, my involvement with the different activities in Latin America is in many areas. And I'm always looking to see how we can collaborate and improve the search and rescue and mountain medicine services in this part of the world. I'm from Argentina and I would like to see that happening in the continent. When we met Nico and the International Commission for Alpha and Rescue, the ideas started to flow, you know, trying to collaborate from outside, from having experience from different systems and just try to be a support for the organization GREM and try to see how we can incorporate more members of Latin American teams and services into the international arena. WMS, ICAR, the International Society of Mountain Medicine are lacking a lot of Latin American representation. So how we can bring ideas from here to there and from there to here. Right, and you actually brought your team from Rocky Mountain Rescue, which was very well received. So, Nico, what do you think the future is going to be from now to the future? <laughs> That's a hard one. It's a good one, huh? <laughs> yeah. I think that the will was already invented. Yeah. That the ICAR UIA model, the ISMM model, mm. is already exists yes. so uh, we I think that we have to bring the model here to meet each other to know uh, the projects and try to bring the standard uh, here to Chile and also to the rest of the country of Latin America now the Andes region is a long Long, long, long <laughs> chain, yeah. yeah. Concordolette. Concordolette. Are there anything either of you want to add before we finish? So well, what's your role here? 
I am the ICAR DIM evaluator for Chile because each time we start a DIM course, there's a process of evaluation to make sure that the ICAR UIAA uh, ISMM standards have been met. And truly, I am pleased to say that it has exceeded my expectations. Anything else you might want to add, either of you, before we close out? The support for Chile, we, uh, myself and Dr. Ryan Patterson that was here collaborating and providing knowledge and his perspective and our perspective from the team and this team, which is a course expedition that is an other opportunity after the team graduates finish their program. So it's a good change of events, chain of events for education in mountain medicine and wrestling. Right. I'm very happy uh, the course is already finished. I'm very relieved now <laughs> that everything uh, was perfect, fine. Nobody got injured. Yeah. Uh, get injured. And to see the the energy, the the interest of students to learn, to improve their skills, and no, I'm, I'm just so happy that we are starting with a good, a good step now, uh, in a good way. And also, I'm very glad for for you guys to be here, mm. supporting the project, uh, helping us, teaching us, and and starting this. That I think that it will be a a good advance, a good way to Chile and Latin America. No. I, wait, 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 wait. But this is not uh, finishing. It's not right finishing? Now. No. We're not you done. You have a couple of days of work still. What are you doing? What are you Grandma? doing? Yeah, there's something else. <laughs> there's something that else will happening happen here. Really, right. I don't know what was what I was thinking when I planned <laughs> this. <laughs> so I, plan, I planned this 10 days course. And after 10 days course, it, I thought that it would be a very good idea to join people, to join different institutions. In a two days workshop that we will meet here today and for the next two days uh, with other rescue institutions like the uh, Army, the Cuerpo de Socorro Andino from different places of Chile, and also GREM, um, starting a work together, uh, trying to see each other, trying to see our faces, and uh, start. Uh, a good relation here in the mountains so then uh, during rescues we will be more ready you'll be yeah. bien preparados more preparado y podemos uh, terminar con palabras en español para llegar a los hispanohablantes creo que es un, una gran posibilidad para unir educar planear para el futuro y creo que es un un movimiento, un primer movimiento en donde podemos seguir pensando en cómo podemos mejorar la atención de medicina de montaña, búsqueda y rescate en todo el continente. Así que gracias por ese primer movimiento, Nico. Buenísimo. Sí, esto es el comienzo o parte del de, de, de inicio de un proceso. Eh, siéntanse todos ustedes invitados a, a colaborar, a a venir a Chile, ver lo que está pasando, podemos avanzar en muchas áreas, en educación, investigación, 
atención sanitaria en la montaña. Así que todos y todas bienvenidos a, a Chile y Sudamérica. ¿no? También respetando lo que se ha hecho anteriormente claro. y todo lo que se hace hoy en día, pero que siempre se puede mejorar. Sí, siempre. Pues gracias a todos. <risa> Chao. Buen jabo. Buen jabo. Bueno. Very excited to have Justin Gardner today, who's an emergency medicine physician at the Virginia Tech Carilion Clinic in Roanoke, Virginia. He completed his Wilderness Medicine Fellowship with Virginia Tech Carilion in 2021 and is now faculty with the program. Justin founded and leads the VTC Wilderness Medicine Journal Club Series. He is the current chair of the WMS Resident Student and Student Education Subcommittee. Justin has completed his FOAM, his DIM, so Diploma in Mountain Medicine, and is now pursuing his DIDM, the Diploma in Dive and Marine Medicine. Justin, welcome to the podcast. And Thanks for having me, Fred. Happy to be here. Yeah. And hey, so I'm looking at this, the VTC Wilderness Medicine Journal Club Series. We're going to get to the subcommittee part for sure. But tell me a little about that. That's really interesting. Uh, so I started the program as sort of my, uh, one of my annual projects back in my fellowship year. Um, I, I did fellowship during COVID when a lot of the in-person opportunities and travel opportunities were gone with the wind. So I wanted to reach out to students and residents and my fellow enthusiasts in wilderness medicine. So I created a virtual recurring monthly journal club program. And I started reaching out to local groups within like the Southeast region, because that's where I'm located. And then kind of partnered with the WMS to now offer free FOM credits to students and residents and even fellows now for participation and presentation in each journal club. So each month we, or I choose a different topic in wilderness medicine, uh, sift through articles on the topic and choose a couple final that I like the best. And then students and residents present and run the journal club. And I just sort of act as the host and the discussion moderator. And yeah, like I said, each, each session offers free FOM credit. So anybody interested in uh, pursuing a FOM or just getting more interested in education and teaching and learning about all the different topics within wilderness medicine, happy to have you. That's a, Awesome opportunity, and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take you up on that myself. So, just just to, so again, just tell us. So, if somebody wanted to get involved in this, where would they go? How do they how do they jump into this directly? Well, I'm happy to share the information on how to access the website with you, Fred. There is a website I made. Uh, if you just search Google for Virginia Tech Carilion Wilderness Medicine Journal Club, it should pull up the website, and the website has the schedule. Zoom meeting links, articles, recordings for the past two and a half years, I think, that are uploaded to the WMS uh, YouTube account and all articles that we've ever discussed. So if you just want to find like a cool treasure trove of interesting articles, it's all accessible there. And registration links because it's very useful to know people's email addresses when I send out their free FOM certificates. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, I, I appreciate that. So now we'll definitely get to the business at hand, but that that's a very cool thing that I couldn't help but uh, feel like we needed to really share and, and, and let the listenership know about. Okay. So with that said, you are the chair of the WMS Resident and Student Education Subcommittee. So Justin, what is the mission of your 
committee? Uh, so I, I've been chair now for two years. I plan to do so for another two. The goal that my committee and myself have, I like to think of it from two perspectives. So we want to increase opportunities and access to wilderness medicine education for students and residents and all students in all healthcare fields, EMS, nurses, ACPs, docs, the whole gamut. We have members from quite a few different backgrounds, so that's helpful to reach out to different learners. But we also want to increase the caliber of education and teach the teachers how to be better themselves. Oh, that makes—I mean—that makes sense. And then, and and what a what a what a very uh, appropriate and I guess timely timely goal for wilderness medicine in, in general and for for the the society. With that said, what are some of the past accomplishments of your of your committee? What have, what have you all been able to accomplish thus far? I can speak specifically for for the past two years because that's been my most like deeply involved time period. But uh, some of the things I'm most proud of are that we overhauled the list of access opportunities for students and residents to find wilderness medicine electives. So it's posted on the student and resident page of the WMS overhauled new website and it's updated by my committee so that way if you're interested in doing an elective or doing a rotation as a student or a trainee you can find them in their up-to-date information which was hard to find before and a core group of us also wrote an article that was published in the wms journal earlier this summer actually on recommended curricula for resident uh wilderness medicine electives so hopefully that can help people sort of know what to include when starting an elective. We have also now for the past three WMS conferences, I believe, have held like a small group session, which is sort of like a WMS conference workshop, but they're free and they're open to anybody, helping people learn how to run a med war simulation, how to critique the trainees and the learners after running a simulation, because the feedback portion after a simulation is almost if not more important than the simulation itself. And uh, just recently we have started working with the Jedi community and the, sorry, committee and the Women in Wilderness Medicine Committee to found hopefully a successful mentorship program within the WMS. Just <laughs> fresh off the press, that one's brand new. I like that, that's where we get cutting edge information. That's good, That's so that's fantastic. And that's, wow, what an undertaking. Uh, that is, I, I, you should be proud of that. That's pretty awesome and I, and I think case in point, like kind of what you're saying, that is a very difficult thing. I think sometimes to, to sort of figure out, I, I know people that are new and joining and trying to figure out where to kind of go, where they can fit in. It's sometimes difficult that the revamp website has helped a lot for sure. But then, yeah, having things like that, cause I, I've had some of my, I've been able to direct them to the website, but I've had some of my medical students that I'm involved with ask that same question, like, how can we do more? And I'm, I know I'm trying to do it in my own program too, but until that happens, there are, <laughs> there is a way to look at it. And so we, that is greatly appreciated for sure. So some communities and some committees are capped to a certain amount of people. And some of them are closed with membership opening at certain times. So how could a, a WMS member join your committee if they, if they were interested? So we, ha it's not capped just to maintain a understanding and a good contact portfolio for my committee members we've tended to have i think the wms does this every august or september so it's coming up hopefully this gets notified before that date but 
we have like an open roll call. Anybody interested that WMS will send out lists of committees looking for new members and then they will filter that information to myself. Uh, we currently have 34 members. We tend to take new members, like I said, in that early fall period each year. That's just the, been the way it has been. But I've also had a few people that have just been really interested and reached out to me, and we've got them involved. I don't want to call it word of mouth, but uh, that's sort of how it trickles down. If you're really interested and show that you're involved and want to do more, uh, we can we can get you on the team. Awesome. How often does your committee meet? We do a, quite a few emails, and I have the committee divided into different teams with different projects. So I'll just reach out to the different team leaders, and then every once in a while, I'll updates to the whole committee at large. But we're all we're all essentially part time to full time, you know, medical providers. So it's hard to find times and dates that work for everybody. Yeah, sure. So what you typically do is I'll create a doodle poll. And with all the dates and times I'm available and can do a meeting, send that out. And we, de- we have a meeting each conference and then at least one or two in between each conference, however formal that ends up being, depending on who's available. So typically two to four a year, I'd say. Awesome. Cool. Justin, hey, it's been a pleasure talking to you and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And uh, I think... People got a lot of good info of how they can get involved and, and what what it is you do. All right. Thanks for having me. Uh, the next interesting person we're going to meet is Jesse Gaynor. Jesse Gaynor is a board-certified emergency medicine physician at the Virginia Tech Carilion School of Medicine, of which she also completed a wilderness medicine fellowship. She is the assistant fellowship director of that same fellowship. She is published in our very own Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Journal, the WEM, where her team set up prospective randomized trial looking into prophylactic acetaminophen or ibuprofen in high altitude sickness. Jesse is the new chair of the GME, which is Graduate Medical Education Committee. Jesse, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Fred. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Um, excited to talk about our about our committee. We have a lot going on this year, so I, I think these podcasts are awesome. Yeah, I think it'll help. It definitely help get people, you know, kind of understand what's going out there and where they can fit in, and just kind of some of the inner workings of, of it. And and also, I mean, you can appreciate this. I've yet, I've yet to meet a boring person that's part of the WMS. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's so true. That's why I love it. <laughs> it's always so interesting. So you've definitely spent some time personally in the in the GME arena as a, as a resident and fellow and, and faculty. So it sure seems like you have a unique perspective to serve and, and lead on and, and lead this committee. Would you mind just telling us what is what's the mission uh, of your of your committee and, and your community? Really kind of our overarching mission is to establish the WMS as the home for wilderness medicine fellowships. You know, we we aren't ACGME, you know, accredited, but, you know, our goal is to kind of mirror those accredited fellowships as much as possible while still retaining the flexibility that is so great about wilderness medicine fellowships. Because, you know, some people may have interest in high altitude medicine. Some people may have interest in dive medicine. And while we have a core curriculum, we want everybody to know about, you know, we still want to retain that flexibility, which is why we, we've kind of kept that open ended. The other sort of mission of our committee is we want 
want to really encourage collaboration between wilderness medicine fellowships and the fellows um, rather than competition. And, and so we're hoping to create lots of opportunities for academic productivity um, for these fellows through research, publications, educational projects, and just kind of share those opportunities with one another so that everybody can sort of pursue their, their path and what, what interests them about wilderness medicine. Yeah, that's awesome. So more collaboration and and uh, and, sh- and streamlining. That's that sounds perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we're hoping. That's what it's been a it's been a good it's been a good year so far. And um, Sue Spano kind of handed over the torch to me this summer, and you know she did a lot of great work, and I'm hoping to carry on a lot of that. And, and we have a few a few new projects coming up too. Yeah, well, that's fantastic. And so I know your background is in emergency medicine. Um, what are the backgrounds of some of the current members uh, on the committee? Yeah, so wilderness medicine in general is very EM heavy, and and that's something that um, we've actually been trying to change. I think it's awesome when other specialties want to get involved, and we can gain from their expertise as well. But the the you know we are EM heavy um, in this in this committee, um, but we have several family practice members um, oh, nice. who are very active, and now they're starting to be wilderness medicine fellowship spots that are more than just EM. In the beginning, it really was primarily for EM residents. Um, That was sort of one of the requirements. But our program at Virginia Tech and several other ones now have family medicine spots. They have internal medicine spots. Yeah. And also ACP spots. Um, There's two two programs in the country that have ACP spots. And we've actually graduated, I think, a total of five ACPs from our program so far. And and so it's, we really love the multidisciplinary approach in wilderness medicine. So I'm really trying to encourage, you know, anybody who's listening to this, even if you weren't EM, please, you know, think about looking into this committee if, if that interests you. That's fantastic. So, I mean, that's, that dovetails nicely into the next question, which was what kind of, what kind of folks are you looking for, for membership to be on the committee? And it sounds like you, you've partially already answered that for us. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I may be a little bit of a broken record on this because I do kind of keep coming back to some of the same themes, but um, you know, the, the target members, uh, I want to emphasize, it's not just people who are involved with an established fellowship. So, you know, a lot of our members are fellowship directors, fellowship faculty, former fellows, current fellows, but several of our members are just looking to learn more about GME fellowships and maybe what it takes to even establish a new fellowship of their own at their institution. So we're really trying to help out with that. But really anybody who's interested in postgraduate medical education is welcome. Um, We're we're a very, very open, very welcoming committee. There's lots of work to do. So we are happy to have motivated volunteers that want to join us. Yeah, that's really good to hear. I mean, and that's one of the things that our program director for OBG in and, and University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, this is our big goal. I mean, we're a little ways off. We're just trying to get an elective <laughs> rotation started first. Yeah. <laughs> but, and that's a great way to start. That's that's kind of how we started um, at, at Virginia Tech as we, we hosted a wilderness medicine elective, and then we kind of branched out. It was actually, I was the first fellow at our fellowship. Oh, wow. And um, it was sort of during my my second and third year, Stephanie LaRoe was my mentor. And um, she kind of said, do you do you, would you like to start a wilderness medicine fellowship here? And so she kind of took a lot of the curriculum from her fellowship at Medical College of Georgia. And we were it was actually a, a not an easy process, but it, it's very doable for people that are you know thinking about starting a fellowship. So we definitely want to facilitate that within the committee. That's incredible. That's that's so that's so good to hear. Well, with with that said, what are. What are some of the past accomplishments of your committee? 
Um, so one of the big ones is we established a fellowship match process that's very similar mm. to the um, NRMP. Our registration is already open for this year. It opened uh, August 1st. Rank lists are due at the end of October, and then match day this year is on November 1st. And so it's uh, it went, went pretty smoothly last year. There is somewhat of a secondary match as well for people that don't match, but it doesn't really have a deadline. It's sort of if, if, you, if you don't match into the program of your choice or program remains unfilled, we do try to share that information so that so that those people can kind of meet up and and come to an agreement to to start a fellowship. So it's not identical to the to the NRMP, but we're trying to move it in that direction. And so that's that's one of our big one of our big accomplishments. We also have a fellowship certification subcommittee, which kind of just tries to. I hate to put it this way, but maintain the quality of fellowships that are out there. And, you know, we hope if someone decides to do wilderness medicine fellowship that has been, you know, credited through the WMS, that it's, you know, got a certain certain level of quality that, um, you know, the fellows get certain opportunities, you know, that their working conditions are good, their contracts are good. So we, when we certify a fellowship for the first time, um, we do sort of a provisional certification that lasts for three years. And after that, we review them again. And then if everything's going great and it still, still looks like a good program, then they um, only have to recertify every five years. We have a couple, couple kind of stipulations to that. If a, if a fellowship goes without a fellow for multiple years, we kind of like to restart the process and go back to provisional just sure. because leadership can change, opportunities mm-hmm. can change, connections can change. Because so much of these fellowships is networking and what connections you have in place. Like, for example, we've got some connections in Nepal. We've got some connections in Peru. We've got um, a dive program we do in Bonaire. And so these are all really great programs. But I have a feeling if we went multiple years without a fellow, you know, some of those opportunities might go away. So sure. so that's kind of our process for that. We've um, certified six more fellowships this year and it's uh it's been a really interesting process we try to keep it very um de-identified and not have people that work in that fellowship involved in you know reviewing the fellowship so we try to we try to really space things out and um, it's 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 gone really well so far we're really proud of it that sounds awesome i know as i'm hearing you i'm just like oh man i told you we're thinking about doing an elective but now, mm-hmm. now my program director is going to kill me. I'm like, oh, we should do, <laughs> we should go for I it. I have ideas. <laughs> no, I think it's great. I That's really cool, great. though. I'm, well, yeah. so I'm, I'm glad that exists because I, I mean, honestly, I, I feel like I'm fairly, fairly well connected in WMS, and, and I just, it's just funny the things that you don't know. So I'm glad we're having this conversation just of, yeah. of all that because, especially what you just kind of went through building, you know, a fellowship. That's. Uh, that's awesome. And, and then to know that the committee exists, that's, you know, predominantly there to help you do such a thing. <laughs> that's awesome. So, and you talked about this a little bit already, but like some of the aims and, and projects, but I guess partly recap and, and anything else you wanted to include on that. What, what are some of the aims and, aims and projects going, going forward or you're currently working on? Yeah. So we've got a, we've got a lot, we've got a lot going on, um, which is, which is always a challenge. You don't want to get so many things going on that it gets scattered, but, um, you know, again, one of our overarching goals is just to create collaboration amongst fellowships and not competition, you know, because we all, we all have the same goal. We all want to practice wilderness medicine. We all want to learn more about it. We all want to, you know, have fellows that are a good match for our program. So we really try to facilitate that. And one thing we're doing that I'm hoping we'll, we'll, you know, get off the ground soon is creating like a shared opportunities list of all the WMS GME fellowships so that say, say we have someone interested in space medicine, our our program 
really doesn't have a lot of experience in space medicine, but we have a new fellow who's very interested in it. And so just trying to kind of see where there's some opportunities for her to get some experience and network, you know, networking is such a big part of doing a GME fellowship. And, uh, you know, a lot of, you know, the kind of the biggest question I get from young doctors and residents is, you know, what's, what's the benefit of doing a wilderness medicine fellowship? And I think probably the biggest benefit is just all the people that you'll meet and the connections you'll make, because that's going to give you opportunities to practice down the road. And so, you know, the WMS is just a a wonderful, you know, society for us to all get together and kind of learn what's out there. So, so we're trying to, you know, get a list of these opportunities for our fellows. The other big thing we're working on, that's going to be a a big task. And and this is why I'm making a call for more committee members that are interested. Um, Tony Eilis is kind of heading this up. But we are trying to create like a core curriculum, um, yeah. which this has been done somewhat before, but we're we're hoping to kind of refine that core curriculum so that there is a, a knowledge base that all wilderness medicine fellows come out of fellowship with. And so so we're trying to get that together. And at the same time, while we're doing that, we want to create a big question bank. And I think this is an opportunity for kind of non, maybe even non-academic, you know, people that aren't associated with a fellowship can help us out with. We want question writers. And we'd mm-hmm. love to, first of all, give give people a little bit of insight on how to write good test questions yeah. and then try to amass <laughs> is, yeah, first of all, it'd be awesome. Um, I know myself, I'm not that awesome at it, but I want to learn. Um, but we would, we would love to start getting a question bank together from people that are, you know, in, kind of in these subspecialties, you yeah. know, like altitude medicine, dive medicine medicine. And then, then the, the kind of the further goal with that is to get an in-training exam together. Oh, um, yes. Awesome. Yeah. So, you know, we are, we've kind of avoided the exit exam board certification, you know, process with these fellowships. Cause again, we, we really want to be kind of free spirits, you know, all our sure. wilderness medicine yeah. people are kind of free spirits. They want to pursue their own, you know, their own interests cause they only have this, you know, one year to do their fellowship, but we want to, we want to have that core curriculum. And then we also want to have like a procedural competency, you know, certain wilderness medicine related procedures. Um, and I mean, this can yeah. be as simple as splinting. It can be, um, you know, related to litter building, patient carries, you know, but those sort of hands-on procedures that are, that, that we think that all wilderness medicine fellows should know. That's awesome. Um, so yeah. those are, yeah. So those are, those are kind of some of our big projects. Other ones, you know, we're not, not silly, but sort of silly things. Like we want to, we want to have socials with all the wilderness medicine fellows. We want to just, you know, we really want to just kind of get everybody together so we can start sharing ideas. So yeah. those are some of our, some of our current projects. There's, and there's the community portion of it for sure. Right. I mean, like that's, mm-hmm. you know, WMS has kind of moved into this, you know, being, uh, well, they've always been, been pretty, uh, collaborative, but, but having this idea of, of, of having true communities, I mean, that makes a lot of sense, you know, to, mm-hmm. <laughs> all these people are in fellowships and have very similar <laughs> interests and thoughts and, and goals yeah. and dreams, you know, to, to be able to do right. that. Right. Um, you make some awesome friends. There, there's a lot of, a lot of fun people. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's really cool. I think the collaboration part's really interesting to me. I, you know, again, just from a standpoint of for our own program, thinking about trying to do, um, even, even just, you know, some of the, the more preliminary things, that's where I found myself thinking is, well, how, like, how am I going to, I going to do like a, like, you know, cave cliff rescue thing. I, how am I going to do, how am I going to pull all this off for an elective for, for these people, as opposed to where can you have people go? Or where can you have people, you know, get involved have with different areas? Yeah. 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 Yes. I mean, so I think that makes a lot of sense as far as, you know, thinking in, in more of a, a group or, you know, 
you know, takes a village kind of, kind of mentality. Exactly. Yeah. Cause it is too much for one person. And I know, um, when Stephanie and I first started our fellowship, we felt like we were doing absolutely everything, yeah. but now we've, you know, we've gotten so many people involved with the fellowship that we really can share the load. And I think that should kind of be the goal for anybody who's trying to start a program is just get as, get as much enthusiastic help as you can. Cause that's, that's, what's going to make it great. Oh yeah, for sure. You got to ride that enthusiasm while it's there. <laughs> yeah, before, exactly. <laughs> before, <get too> tired. <laughs> before it dies out. Out. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Well, great. So, so then, how can how can our our members, how can WMS members join this community, or how can they get involved with some of these projects? Anybody who's interested, please email me directly. Um, my email, if you want to, if you have a pen, is g e h n e r j at gmail.com. And if you have any questions about the committee, if you have interest in joining, please just email me. I can tell you tell you more about it, tell you kind of what the requirements are, you know, how much we'd like you to be involved and um, when our meetings are and so forth, which I, th- I think is maybe another question you were going to yep. ask me. If you're interested in joining, if you're interested in working on this new curriculum project, if you're interested in leading activities for fellows, if you have something really cool where you work that you think, man, this would be great for wilderness medicine fellows to experience, you know, letting us know about those opportunities. And then again, back to the question bank, if you like writing questions, we would love your questions. So we'll we'll be hopefully putting out a call to the WMS at large once we kind of get this established for anybody who wants to contribute to that. So that's awesome. This is a, it's very exciting. Again, multiple projects, people can get, getting, get involved in, in different areas or even just to, you know, kind of get help with launching their own fellowship. I mean, I think this is, uh, this is, this is awesome stuff and this is what this whole collaboration and, and WMS is really all about. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. So when, so obviously they can email to sort of start the ball rolling when, how often do you have meetings and in a, in a Roughly, when when are they? Um, since the summer conference, we've had one GME meeting already. And the, the biggest challenge is, especially with such a large committee, is getting everybody together at the same time. Sure. Yeah, sure. Um, and, you know, we try to keep everybody in the loop. We try to, you know, I try to field questions from people, things that they would like brought up at the meetings. But we, uh, my goal was to have at least three to four meetings between the summer and the winter conference. And so our next committee meeting, I'm hoping will be sometime in late October. I'm actually getting ready in two days to lead the backpacking medicine on the AT, the um, CME adventure trip that the WMS holds. I'm the leader of that. And we're oh, wow. hoping, for, hoping for good weather on the Appalachian Trail. We've got uh, 19 participants coming with us. So I will not be doing a meeting until after that's all done. <laughs> um, but in late October, we're hoping to have a meeting and then hoping to have a, a couple more meetings prior to the winter conference um this february so i will try to try to share that information with anybody who's interested jesse do you have a at trail do you have a trail name i do i do it's uh it's twisted sister oh that's pretty I, good i did the i did a southbound through hike in 2008 i'm getting to be a old through hiker unfortunately but <laughs> i uh i i still love the trail and i i do research on through hikers and I, um, yeah, so I was, I was twisted sister because I, I like rock and roll and I have very loose joints and, um, kind of oh, wow, that pro- worked out. In, little, little injury prone, <laughs> but I'm good. <laughs> but at least you got a cool name out of it. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I don't look like D Snyder at all. Though. Um, <laughs> fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, nobody yeah, but fortunately, D Snyder looks like D Snyder. <laughs> nobody looks like him. No. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, awesome. Listen, it was such a pleasure having you on here. And I think we've got a lot of great information for our listeners to kind of go with and and hopefully you all can get involved because that's what it's all about you know the more the merrier 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was, it was great to talk to you, Fred. And yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. Have a great day. for this edition of the Wilderness Medicine Podcast, the official podcast of the Wilderness Medical Society. CME credit is available for WMS members for listening to the Journal Club portion of the podcast and filling out the questions. Be safe and drop a line for questions or ideas. Until next time.